To start with, I'd simply like to read out... Now, this was written years ago. Years before it was published. So this is from Random Walks, Essays in Elective Criticism, by McGill Queen's University Press. Yes, it was published in 1997. Probably written in 1994, 1995. It was uh, a critique of a feminist poet, Erin Moore, one of her poems. In it, quote, she was saying, but in this contemporary verse... It is precisely these social, critical, and psychologically fragmented heteroglossia that have been canonized at the expense of an authentic, incontestable, and memorable language, suggesting that authentic, memorable language is the criteria for great poetry. It's one of the two criteria for great poetry. Language in its vivid power and its precision and its lapidary quality and its rhetorical and its prodigious rhetorical flow as well and on the other hand something which takes time education reflection and maturity to work oneself into a major theme a theme of human importance a synoptic view on the complexity of human life as it manifests in so many different ways Great poetry. We all want to be great poets. Very few of us will ever make it. You know, and besides, it's not our decision. Posterity's decision to decide who is a great poet and who isn't. It's the reader. The readers to come. This, this is the asymptotic ideal that we all strive for, obviously, without trying to be too pompous or arrogant about it. But if we do ask ourselves, what is it that makes a great poem or a great poet? It seems to me that what we call greatness emerges at the confluence of an eloquent language and a major subject. The two of them have to go together. Otherwise, one can become an excellent craftsman who uses languages that should be used, but has nothing particular importance to say, something that will resonate with one's contemporaries as well as with future generations. I'm thinking, for example, of Swinburne, who had the gift of language. There's no question about it. Some would say it's obviously overdone. But nevertheless, the man knew how to write a poem but he didn't have much to say. It resonates in the human consciousness today. For, for most people, the most important thing in life would be love. Well, Yates said that there are only two things that can interest a serious mind, sex and death. The point is, you, you talk about the language, and then you talk about the content and the subject and the complexity of the subject. Love is perhaps more important to more people than politics is, even though politics could influence the way they bend their lives. This is true, I think, but only a partial truth. Getting back to the poem, Maury's poem, if you were criticizing it for bringing in sociological, um, feminist. feminist particularly, mm-hmm. agendas mm-hmm. that interfered with the memorability and authenticity of the language. It's a complex issue, and and as such, interesting. Where do you draw the line? Between? Between what to allow into a poem and what (coughs) not to allow into a poem. This is a complex question, which requires, I think, more than one answer. To define greatness, this is... What we're trying to do here, if we, if what it's constitutes, a, yeah, a great poem. Yeah, uh, Sorry to interrupt again, but it's you know you can't get to the intent of the author necessarily. That may be one of her intentions, but it may be a whole variety. When I wrote that essay, Erin Murray, who, by the way, I've changed my mind to some extent about this. I've, I've met her, and we've talked, and uh, and I've read her latest work, 
and I find it far superior, by the way, to Meredith. I have some of this material right here on my shelf. And uh, I think there are still things that are the aspects of my work that I simply can't understand. And in fact, uh, in a, one of our last communications, I asked her to enlighten me <laughs> next time we meet. But I find that she's, she's developed in a, in a lyrical direction now. And some of the poems I've read recently are very moving. So the essay that you're referring to, which I say was written maybe 12 or 15 years ago, when I objected strenuously uh, to the work that I was reading then, but not just to Aaron's work. I was, as I said earlier, I was, I was primarily concerned with language and how the language must be, I hate to use the word exploited, and I don't like to use the word explored, because it's a cliche, but how the language must be refined and strengthened when it enters a poem. A poem. a poem is like Switzerland. It's a country that is not really very generous with, uh, with awarding citizenship to others. Uh, my aunt has lived in, in Geneva for 35 years, and she still is not a Swiss citizen. They are very, very careful and stringent and particular about whom they offer citizenship to. And I think, in a sense, a poem is very much like a little Switzerland on the page. It has to be very, very stringent and careful. It must apply a very fine-meshed filter. That filter being recognized form? Recognized form, appropriate words, words that work in rhythm together, words that join together to form aphoristic memorabilia. That is to say, one of the... The keys for me to a good poem is how it sticks in the memory. You uh, mentioned that a poem by Auden pretty well memorizes itself. Right, but I I defy you to memorize a poem by John Ashbery. I mean, if you work really hard at it, like an actor at a certain script, you will memorize it. But some poems are just very easy to memorize because the language wants the, the way in which the language is deployed. The aphoristic quality of the language, too. The phrases that stick out in your mind. You've identified memorability. Why, why is memorability such an important criteria for greatness? Well, for one thing, if, if, it, if it evaporates very quickly, then obviously it doesn't have much staying power. But it doesn't evaporate if it's on the page. It evaporates in your mind. It doesn't live on the page. It lives in your head, right? The page is just a medium, a way of approaching the human mind and the human heart. The page itself, if it's not read, is like you know, like a tree falling in the forest. Is, you know that old cliche, which nobody hears. Has the tree fallen? Well, maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. It's, there's no way of saying. Is the cat dead and Schrodinger's box? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't until you open it. Right? The poem lives in the mind. The poem lives in the human sensibility. Whether it's memorized line by line, or whether only certain phrases happen to to emerge because. There's something almost compelling or demanding about them. This is where the poem must live, you see, and I'm saying that if you read an Ashbury poem, nothing is going to stick out. Nothing is going to be vivid enough to to establish squatter's rights in your imagination or in your memory. And therefore, though, just because, for example, I don't remember Robin Robertson, poet that's fairly prominent now, the poem Park Drunk, I love the poem, and it's delightful. I can't for the life of me remember any of the lines, though. As imperturbable as a snibbed walk. Yes. Yes. This is really not the point that I'm making. The point I'm trying to make is that if you wanted to memorize one of Robin Robertson's poems, you would have a far easier time doing it than memorizing one of uh, Jory Graham's poems. You know, and if you wanted to to memorize a poem by uh, Matthew Arnold, you'd have a far easier time doing that 
then let's say memorizing a poem by uh, well, you just named the poet. It's, you know, most poets are not memorable in that respect. But that's so a criteria of greatness, though. Yes, it's an aspect of a great poem. That a great poem, if it, I mean, if, if it happens to be 450 pages long, you may have to spend 10 years memorizing it. This is not the point. But the thing is, you would read a poem by Robert Robertson, or read a poem by uh, by Auden. It's hard to forget even what a couple of lines, you know. Lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children, and the grave proves the child ephemeral. But in my arms till break of day, let the living creature lie, mortal or guilty, but to me the entirely beautiful. And memorize that just by looking at it. And I could go through the whole poem. There's four stanzas. That's just the first poem. Uh, I had to work a little bit. It took me half an hour, you know. But the thing is, I tried to memorize an Ashbury poem. I couldn't. I forced myself to memorize, you know, memorize a few lines, but it was an act of the will, not an act of love. You know, it was like marrying someone for money, not because you desired her body or you loved her personality. You see what I'm trying to get at? It's a sign. You, you have a motivation. You wish to carry it in your own mind. Is that one of the I things you're suggesting? Exactly. I want you to want to keep it with I you. I want it to become part of my nature. Yeah. I want it to become part of my sensibility. Now, it's harder to memorize a novel, but, you know, obviously, because novels use language in a different way to begin with. And, mm. of course, they're much longer, and they rely on plot and character and, and, uh, and different kinds of uh, structures and so mm. on. A poem works first and foremost in language. Now, that isn't to say a novel doesn't or a play doesn't, because without language, it would cease to exist. I don't mean that. I mean that the way in which the language is deployed, the way in which it is arranged on the page, ultimately the way in which it is spoken, is different in poetry than it is in other art forms. And it has to be, because a poem does not depend upon character, plot, or upon an actor addressing an audience with a grand scenario behind them or something like that, which, like opera, registers too, visually and, and orally. But poem is a very small thing. As I say, it's a little country. It's like Switzerland, right? Whereas a novel is more like Siberia or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or Canada, you know? You can travel through Switzerland in, a, in half a day, three quarters of a day a day if you go fast enough. How long does it take you to travel through Canada? You see what I mean? It's just a metaphor, analogy that I'm using. Poetry survives in the mind in virtue of its language. So when Auden says, lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm, the very phrase, human, on my faithless arm. Well, what other, what, is a head inhuman? Is it monstrous? Every lover's head is human. But the, the, the paradox that's involved, mm. and also the rhythm. Well, for me, the, the word faithless, I think he was concerned about his, his lover who was... Of course, the biography, you know, and uh, behind it, the Kalman and so on. None of that matters. What matters, it doesn't matter. It might be that you, you might love someone who's pol a polka-dotted denizen of the planet Mars. It really doesn't matter human on my faithless arm. But of course, what also resonates is that it goes back to Wordsworth. To one of his Lucy poems. I had no human fears. Well, what other fears would Wordsworth have? You know, that, that Lucy might die one day, right? You know, I had no human fears. Well, of course, they have to be human fears. But there's a meaning to that, you know, in which, in which he is saying, essentially, that the real fears are human, not necessarily sociological, or as we'd say today, political, or, you know, the real fears have to do with the passing of another individual. They're human. They're over the death of love. Something 
you would resonate with too, as we all have. The fears you see, which are the displaced fears, which are, uh, some may think they're even grander fears, more operatic fears, you know, the fear of you know, civilization, uh, disintegrating. I am, I am afraid that Western civilization is in the last hundred years of its existence, that it's being phased out. That's a great fear of mine, but it's not like a human fear. The, human, the fear I would have, let's say, if the woman I love had decided to leave me. That, that is a human fear. This is what Wordsworth meant. When Lucy died, his young lover died. Her name wasn't Lucy, of course, a French woman, but, but when she died, uh, you know, he was, to say he was disturbed is to put it mildly. He was extremely distressed. Um, but this is the line that Auden picks up on when he says, Layer human head, my love. Part of the, the great conversation, you That's could say. Exactly. So it, the Wordsworth poem lived in Auden's imagination. Auden's poem lives in my imagination. And, and the way in which it stays there is by virtue of its language. So that is the first criterion of the good poem or the great poem. It has to use language in a way that is different from the language of ordinary speech, the language of the novel or fiction, the language of the theater, so there can be poetry in fiction. As we know, look at uh, James Joyce and, and Ulysses. Mm-hmm. So many, uh, there can be poetry in, in drama. Look at Shakespeare, the ultimate example. So at times one doesn't even know if one is listening to poetry or listening to, 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 to theater, to drama. Of course, there's this, this blending of the different forms. But poetry, you see, is not acted out on the stage, and poetry is not, it's not no longer tell stories as it once did in the days when... Homer. Uh, in the home, exactly. Or even or the Bible. Mm-hmm. Where our back wrote about you know, in our day and age, <laughs> and for some time now, the poem has had to, to make a way for itself into the human imagination, different from how the novel does it, or the play does it, or opera does it, or music does it, or whatever. And the first way in which it enters into our lives and becomes becomes a companion, a part of our lives, is through the virtuosity of its language. If this is a sine qua non. Without that, forget it. That plus form of abeyance. It's, it's almost as if you have to know the form before you're allowed to break it. Is that what you're I suggesting? So. I think so. And Yeats used uh, formal equivalents right up to the very very last days. You know, the, the winding stair of the tower. You'll find poems that are written, you know, written according to the, 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 the standards and the templates of, uh, of much earlier verse. I've always, this is something I've stressed for years when I was struggling to become, to try and become a poet myself which is why I didn't publish for many, many years and went through, tried to learn uh, how to use form from, actually from Beowulf up to that particular, you know, that moment in time where I, where I was located. Because knowing form, by understanding it and learning about it, this is the way to greatness, how you would judge the merit of, of a poem, one against the other, which is what we're, what we're going to do later on. Well, as people like to say, does it speak to me? Now, obviously different poems will speak to different people and very poor poems will also speak to people because they, they might find uh, an alliance or a relation with the subject of the poem uh, a, a very poor poem that might write about the death of one's great-grandfather appeal to someone whose great-grandfather has recently died and bring tears, tears to his or her eyes but that doesn't make it a good poem so it's not just the way in which it speaks to you but the way in which it speaks to an educated sensibility somebody who has read poetry for many, many years who has thought about it, uh, who has understood that it is a part of uh, our, our tradition. Moving beyond I know what I like, there are different levels, there's different measures of good taste. Yeah, why I like it. You might, you might after examining it, why do I like this, realize that you like it for those reasons. 
you know, it's like looking at a, a picture of a cow, which is just a picture of a cow, nothing more. It's not painted by Van Gogh or anything like that. And you think it's great. Why? Because if you examine your own motives deeply enough, you find out that when you grew up on a farm, you had a favorite cow, and you really liked it, had to milk for days and days, and for some reason or other, this picture takes you back to your early nostalgic and Arcadian childhood or something like that. It's nothing to do with the picture. You see, the picture itself might just... It's triggered. It might just be the most, the most lame and pedestrian, you know, rendition of the cows. Who cares? Well, that's the thing. I think it's partly the feeling, too. Of It's a feeling that's triggered, and the challenge is to describe in words that feeling. Yes, yeah. It works the other way around, too, just to go back to it. You look at a painting, and there's a lot of green in it, and you don't like this painting. You just don't like this painting, even though it might be an excellent painting, right? In terms of all the criteria that, that we can assemble to judge a painting by. But you, you hate this painting, and then you go to a shrink, and you spend seven years on the couch, and then you finally realize that the reason you cannot tolerate this painting, and considered it a bad painting, and have written three books about how bad a painting it is, and how, how the painter should actually be put up against the wall and executed, you realize that you objected to it because of the color green, because when you're two years old, as you, your shrink helped you discover by, by disinterring this buried memory, your uncle tried to drown you in a vat of pistachio ice cream. And that has turned you off green, right? And that's why you never like the markup, you know, green, green, I want my love green. That's a terrible poem, you thought, because then you realize it was a horrible vat of pistachio ice cream that your mad uncle tried to drown you in once, or something like that, right? And now that you've exorcised this particular memory, you can look at the painting again, or at the poem by Garcia Marca, and say... Uh, Objectively, yeah. whatever that means. But yeah. Whatever that means, because because art, you see, this is always the problem. Never resolve it entirely. Art lives in the intersection between the objective and the subjective. Because if you assume that it's merely a subjective phenomenon, something that appeals to a subjective impulse or desire or response in you, then the the ultimate logical conclusion is that anything goes. Well, and there's no debating, but there's no measuring merit. No, not. I had a student once who I failed for a paper that he wrote in a poetry class. And he said, but it's subjective. There were 18 students in the class. He said, 18 different papers, 18 different points of view. I said, well, in that case, everybody gets A+, plus, which is the case. Yeah, why even discuss it? But you see, so he, he had taken the subjective argument to its extreme limit. And then you have the objective argument, which is the very opposite, that the, that the work of art exists out there in the universe, the way in which a natural law exists out there in the universe, or the way in which a natural object exists governed by mm. natural law. This is Kant, basically. In the critique of judgment, though, that's, we won't get into that, because no. that is really far more complex. Yeah, because really what we're getting at today is just returning to the original quote. First of all, what makes an excellent, an excellent or, poem? A meritorious, meritorious poem. poem. And, and your, your critique was that there, was, there were other factors, motivations, mm-hmm. involved in the production of the poem that detracted from its uh, memorability, its authenticity. Can we get to what's allowed, what's not allowed then? I think every poet has to decide for his or himself because there are there really are no hard and fast rules there. And this in the case is very much like love, you know. There are no rules. They're much like marriage. There are no rules. Every marriage is different. No no, let me get at this. I think what I was trying to say in that essay in which I savaged Aaron Moray, for which I feel somewhat guilty for now, you know. I wouldn't have written that same essay today. 
Well, part of it's because you've met her and she's, she's been gracious, I, would, I yes, assume. Yes, and part of it is because, you know, I think the issue is more complicated than it was when I was writing that essay. This is 15 years ago. You know, I had some thoughts about these matters, which I'll try and develop in a moment. But what I was trying to say there is that I think it is extremely perilous for the poet to use your word to allow an agenda to get in the way of the language. And that's what often happens. And maybe that's what you were getting at when you used the word political in that respect. But if you have a specific agenda... But this is a specific critique of yours, though, correct? Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's because you objected to... You don't necessarily... You don't object to feminism, I don't imagine, but... I don't object to anything that's no. taken to an extreme. But there was an objection nonetheless. Yes, because I thought the language had been polluted. As a result of the particular parti pris which the poet had adopted. And I find that this is almost invariably the case. I mentioned John Ashbery before. That's one of the reasons. He has an agenda. He writes a poem, you know, which says, I once let a guy blow me, uh, and I'm thinking about it, maybe I should, etc., etc. I was thinking, well, you know, this, we know that he's, that he's homosexual, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, you know? But we know that he has a particular case that he's trying to make. Auden was the same. Auden was the same, but, but he his doesn't, doesn't apply. You yeah. see, it, it, it may have nothing to do with Chester Common. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? As I said, it could have to do with the polka dotted Martian, who is a transvestite or has 17 different uh, genders, and working at the same time. All of them, if not socially constructed, interplanetarily constructed. It doesn't matter. You see, anybody can read that poem and identify with it or with its subject. Whereas when you read... Ashbury, it's hard to identify with anything else but Ashbury's particular concern. What do I mean by an agenda? Did Auden have an agenda? Well, let's go back to what you were saying before. There is, in a sense, a larger agenda, but it's not something that dominates consciousness with a specific ideological will. Uh, but he, he lived with it in an age where overt homosexuality was dangerous. Yeah, except that, well, yeah, but it wasn't the same as with Oscar Wilde. I mean, in his, in his circle, this was not a problem. Chester Compton was, was, was lionized as well in many places that he went to. You know, this mm. is, it was the same also with uh, James Merrill uh, and his David. You know, they lived in Greece for five years while well, that was perhaps accepted. It's better mean it's accepted all, all over the Western world. Now, it's not accepted in the Islamic world. You object to the gratuitous personal reference to John Ashford's homosexuality in his poetry and the lack of universal appeal? I don't think it's poetry to begin with. Universal appeal or no universal appeal. It just isn't poetic language. It's sloppy, it's self indulgent, it's prosy, it's flaccid, it's insipid. It has no uh, metaphorical vitality, which is one... And yet it's lauded. <laughs> and yet it's lauded, so is Jory Graham. And I've met people who love Jory Graham, and I've brought, you know, I've discussed certain poems with them of hers. They didn't have a clue what she was... What, they didn't know what she was talking about, but they loved her anyway. I said, well, recite some lines for me, and they couldn't recite any lines. Yeah. So well, what is that about this world? You know, well, that, I think that's more a, a function of uh, today's minuscule attention spans as opposed to... If you love something, you remember something. If you know something, you remember something. If you know what you love, you remember it. At least aspects of it. Maybe not everything. I, I'm not saying we have to be 
you know, that we have to have uh, photographic memories. Far from it. But we have to have memories that lean towards the things we love. It leaves a mark. And that eventually leaves a mark. That, had, that, you know, that there is a kind of uh, synaptic archive. If I, you that, you, that you want to return to it? Or it's always there. Maybe not consciously, but it's always there. And it will emerge then in your dreams. You know, during moments in which, uh, inadvertent moments, moments in which your attention is wandering, and suddenly there it is. If we focus back in on that line that, that uh, it's difficult to draw then, between, again, a meritorious poem and the complexity of it and the degree to which you would bring in, it's not a hidden agenda, but another layer, let's say, another ambiguity that's at work. Would you not have to know the poet's intention before uh, judging and again in trying to draw this line and saying that this poem is, is a great poem and it talks about war um, is a war poet he died in the war he wrote great poems talking at the Coram Hes Pompatri Pori you know his yeah. great poems these are poems that are universal in the same way that the eighth poem we were uh, referring to earlier uh, the second coming is universal but it has no specific subject he was probably thinking at that time of the rise of, of Bolshevism like the poems yeah, written the Russian War of the uh, Revolution if I correctly it was published uh, or written or published in 1919 yes it was um, and so we know that he had a, he had a certain historical vision of what was happening at that particular time but you see that poem can be read today and apply not it can apply to the Iraqi War if you want apply to uh, what Samuel Huntington said in the Clash of Civilizations about Islam that the borders of Islam are bloody almost every Islamic nation is at war in one way or another in the world today. Its borders are bloody. And you could say this is a poem that refers to perhaps the rise of Islamofascism in our age. It can be made to apply to that. It can apply to the rise of fascism or Nazism during the 30s or 40s. But I, mean, I want to say something here sure. first. Um, with respect to the Iraqi war and uh, the poems of Harold Pinter that we both read, um, Pinter, of course, objects strenuously to the Iraqi war. He objects just as strenuously to the United States of America and to Israel. All of them are implicated in some of the And to Tony Blair. And to Tony Blair. And, well, I think Tony Blair has a lot not to recommend him to, you know. Um, he was a wimp. You see, when Pinter, who has a specific agenda, which can be described as anti-American and anti-Israeli, pro-left, pro-radical left. That's why he got the Nobel Prize, and it was admitted as such by one of the members, as I said earlier, of the Nobel Prize Committee. And then you read his poems, you see the problem. There is no dis- there is no gap, there is no difference, there is no distinction, there is no open space between his private agenda and his use of language. The language is there to express at a, at a very close distance there's, in fact, there's no distance whatsoever. The language and the agenda are almost isomorphic. As you say, there's no complexity to the language. It's yeah, but there's no distance. This is very, very important. But when you read the Yeats poem, you know, as I say, you use the word ambiguous. I, I would say that it's, you know, it's a multilateral poem. And maybe mm-hmm. we're saying the same things. It can apply to any of a different set of circumstances that might arise in one's own lifetime because the poem is not governed by a specific political agenda 
but by an understanding of the danger that has always affected us as human beings, the rise of despotic, totalitarian, or autocratic uh, regimes or organizations, uh, whether it's tribal or whether it's universal, there was, for example, in, in Orwell and in, in, in Huxley. His idea of history being cyclical incorporates this, yes. this you know, we're sort of at the end of 2,000 years of history and, and something new is going to, and maybe it's dark. There's so much in that poem that there isn't in Pinter's. But I find it so surprising because Pinter can be so articulate and yet in his poetry he's so inarticulate. Because once again, back to what I said, he is driven by his, his particular animus. He's driven by a, a particular hatred, by a, a kind of bilionsness uh, with respect to his subject so that he turns into a propagandist and that's what happens you see when when there is no distance between the idea of the subject or the agenda whatever you want to call it and the language then what we get it inevitably is propaganda or sentimentality which undermines merit yes because propaganda is is is, is based either on a lie or a misperception and sentimentality is based upon oversimplification of yeah. complex phenomena. Oversimplifications do not last, and ultimately lies tend to disintegrate with time. As I said earlier, the primary concern for the poet, because he cannot monopolize greatness, nobody does, but as I said earlier, greatness is an, is an honor that will be conferred by posterity. So let's forget about greatness as such. <clears throat> All the poet can do is try and speak to his fellow man and woman in the most passionate, powerful, lucid, and memorable way possible. Do his or her best. Things about that are important to all human beings. Mm -hmm. Not simply to the poet himself. It has to come from some, come somewhere from personal, it, but, it, but if it's something that you, in, if you have the intelligence to anatomize your own motives, you would say, ah, oh, perhaps my great interest in cockroaches, you know, look, I consider it to be, you know, the sumum bonum of the insect world, and maybe, well, maybe that is something that wouldn't interest other people, so maybe I shouldn't write 17 books about it, you know, or I write a poem about it, or whatever it happens to be. I mean, I spent the last 20 years, you know, really investigating the inner life of the cockroach, but, you know, it, even though this is of great interest to me, it may not be of great interest to my fellow so I'll put that aside, and I'll write about the fact that I've just fallen in love, because that might be of great interest to my fellow man, you know? But what's and the motive behind that? If you truly are more interested in cockroaches than in love, mm -hmm. are you writing that about love just in hopes of becoming immortal? Well, this I can't, I can't, I can't answer that. These are, you know, barometric depths that I don't even, I wouldn't, I wouldn't scruple to plumb. It's, they're beyond me. All I know is I'm dealing with certain phenomena, I know that you, the question you ask me is what, if it has to be of interest to others, it should also be of interest to the poet. And what I'm trying to say is that there are certain things that are of interest to the writer that if he examines them scrupulously, he may arrive at the conclusion that they are not interesting to other people. And therefore, there's no reason he shouldn't write about them, but he shouldn't inflict them on others. But if he writes about something that is interesting to him or her, but he also feels honestly will be of interest to others as well, then it is his or her obligation 
to use the language in such a way that others will remember or want to remember, even to commit to memory. The, the phrase, the habit by heart, you know, is, is an expressive phrase mm-hmm. because it lives in the heart, the very seat of love. You see, that's what it means to have it by heart. It's not just rote. Yeah. But you see, in order for it to enter the heart, it must be written in such a way that the language, no matter what the subject is, becomes lovable. So when Cumming says, I do not know what it is about you that closes and opens, only something in me understands. The voice of your eyes is deeper than all roses. Nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. I mean, the the minute I read that at the age of 16, there it was. I've never forgotten it. I could probably recite most of the poem, but that's the last stanza, and it's, a, it's actually an alternate rhyming stanza, the only one in the poem that does so. You know. Now, that's a subject <coughs> that interests me, that interests you, and interested Cummings and so on, to look at a woman and say, nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. Yeah, it's beautiful. You see, I, I mean, you, this is, it passes the test, the test that Frost said when he reads it or something. But as he said, it sends a shiver up your spine. Makes the yeah. hair at the back of your neck stand up. Uh, Emily Dickinson says something very similar. Um, no, Nabokov too, of course. The, the shiver. Oh yeah, yeah. I decide what I'm familiar with. But there it is. You know, just now when I recited that last stanza, yeah. I felt something crawl up the back of my spine. There wasn't a cockroach. <laughs> There's something that's that's been conveyed with a genuine interest in sharing. Yes. something yes. so there, there's that strong motivation to share with other human beings but then there's that line that comes in between that if you've got a vision of the world you want to persuade others using rhetoric and there's, there are great brilliant poems that do that as well that come from the same depths you have a tendency Nigel to bring up incommensurable issues, <laughs> it seems to me, you know. I'm getting to understand you a bit better now. Um, I would say, without much assurance, let's say, you know, or an utterance that would have to be qualified, but I would say that, by and large, a poem does not try to persuade. A poem with merit, a it poem of excellence does, does not try to... It does not try to persuade, because it tries, certainly doesn't try too hard persuade because mm. if it does then it edges toward the other the other perimeter that we call propaganda but what about you know these wonderful patriotic poems that have been written well most of them most of them are dribble the ones I've read I've read a book of patriotic poems once all kinds of sonnets I've written most of them or, or even let's say religious ones then trying to to, to persuade you and most of them but most of them are dribble but what about John, the psalms John. then They're, are they trying to persuade they're more asking for help they're more expressions of uh, of, uh, a need for a relationship with the divine they don't persuade so much Uh, and many of the many of the songs let's face it you know let's not be uh, overwhelmed by 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 some sort of public notion of grandeur most of the songs are readable many of them Mm, I don't know about that. I think I think there are a couple of great the ones that David you know, wrote were were magnificent. Well, we don't know whether David wrote them or not. It's not even humans. Most of them I find unreadable. I find them quite tenuous at times. I find them also at times very, at least even in the King James translation, quite prosy, and in modern translations even worse. 
Um, and I haven't read anywhere near as much poetry as you have. But so maybe that's taste coming through. I don't know. John Donne wrote some great religious poems, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We're thinking of the divine solace that he wrote towards the end of his life, you know, the four corners, etc. But he also wrote religious poems earlier, but they were inflected by a wryness, by a love of metaphor, by a, by by a passion for language that often led him away from his theme. Yes. Into into new ways of thinking about it, or, or sometimes into into subjects from which the reader would have trouble trying to to um, uh, connect to you know the original impetus for, for, the, uh, for the better, obviously getting better. getting away from it was, this it was, rhetorical it was kind of persuasive. Yeah, yeah. His complexity, his dryness, his humor, and his endemic sexuality. Mm. You know this, about, you know mm. that uh, that created that, that marvelous oeuvre of poetry. Mm. Um, but generally, most religious verse tends to be not like the Psalms or the Good Psalms or like uh, or like John Donne's work. It tends to be a restatement with a desire to impress and persuade others about one's particular agenda, which in this case is a, is a, is a set of religious convictions. And that's where that's what I meant earlier, where you have to be very careful that the agenda does not obscure the language, yeah. or cr- at times actually crush the language and turn it into something else, turn it into an advertisement, for an example. Yeah, you know? propaganda. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, th- these are complex issues. Uh, the poet has to decide for himself. But I think if you keep in mind that that you know you need that the theme has to be mediated by the language. It cannot be taken over wholesale by the language, yeah. which is what Pinter did and Yeats didn't. Yeats's theme is mediated by, by the beauty of his language too, and not only the fact that it, not just the fact that it was applicable to many different situations, and not just specifically uh, the Iraqi War, you know, but to war in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it lives in the language once again. They're pr- they're, the poet's primary love. Mm. Here, uh, here, I'm, I'm willing to actually come out with an axiom or a maxim, you know. The poet's primary love, not his only love, because the poet must be eclectic, which is to say he must be promiscuous or she. The poet's primary love among many loves, it has to be language. The poet has to marry the language. That has to be his primary love. He can have... Not the cause. Not the cause, the language. He can have many mistresses as most many poets have had. One mistress can be a cause. One mistress can be, uh, I don't know, a particular idea. One mistress can be, who knows what they are. You know? So you're saying that Pinter, and Pinter is monogamous to the cause. That's right. He didn't, well, he didn't marry the language. I didn't, I, I to go back to Ashbury or Jory Graham or Ed Carson. None of them have married the language. They yeah, have it's married, secondary. They, yeah, they've married something else. Mm. Uh, they, they married the cause. They married the agenda. They married the, uh, you know, the, the thesis that, 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 that they wished to develop. Mm. Or some of them have simply married uh, fame. Some of them are more interested in fame than anything else. And I well, in pandering, right. pandering to to That's the right. popular. They know, they know what will win them the prizes. Well, that note, maybe we can end uh, this section of the discussion. Okay.